Let us pray once again. Speak, O Lord. Shine us. Shine upon us, Lord, with your, the brightness of your purity. And quench any unbelief, Lord. Help us grasp the heights of your plans for us. Pray now, Lord, as we come to the word of God, to open this portion of your word, Lord, that you will speak to us, through us, and for your glory, not our own. We pray, O oh God, for your mighty power to be at work through the preaching of your words. Open our eyes to see your marvelous light. Open our thoughts and mind, Lord. Search our hearts and and mold us, Lord. Be present among us, we pray. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Camp of Morgan was one of a hundred and fifty young men who sought entrance into the Methodist ministry, 1888. He had passed the written exam, but he now faced the test of giving a trial sermon in front of a panel. The results were released. Morgan's name was among the 105 who were rejected. He wired his father with one word, rejected. He sat down and wrote in his diary, this is a very dark day. Everything seems still. God knows best. Now the reply to his wire was quick to arrive from his father and it said rejected on earth accepted in heaven dad Campbell Morgan went on to prove that rejection on earth is often of little consequence his father wisely recognized that rejection on earth is of no consequence of rejection in heaven and here we come in a part of the gospel where we have this these religious leaders, the Pharisees, who are rejecting the light, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. They reject the, the miracle right in front of their eyes of a man blind from birth, receiving his sight. They reject Jesus, and they remain in the dark blindness of their unbelief. But those who, like this poor blind man, this poor beggar, who did not have any light at first, who were walking in the darkness, those who were rejected by the world can be accepted. And they can declare the same words that this blind man said. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. We continue our journey to, through the Gospel of John and we come to this third year of Jesus' ministry. This is the last year of Jesus' ministry before he dies. He's no longer, therefore, in Galilee. He's been in Jerusalem for several weeks, as we saw. Remember, the chapter 5 back in Galilee had started his controversies with, uh, with the religious leaders over healing on the Sabbath, right? The paralytic had been healed on the Sabbath. And here the controversy comes to the peak of the controversy. This conflict of the Jews toward Jesus grows and grows and the unbelief of the crowd and particularly the religious leaders is intensifying there's a growing hatred 
because of Jesus, because of his messianic claims that we saw last time, before Abraham was, I am, remember. He claimed to be the son of God, essentially God in the flesh. And yet in the midst of this opposition, it comes this remarkable miracle that is the sixth miracle. Remember, we have seven miracles in the Gospel of John. This is number six. These miracles are getting bigger and bigger. We saw uh, in past weeks and months. And now, can you believe it? Give sight to a blind man. A blind man who was blind from birth. And he goes through several stages, this blind man. And in these stages of healing, he grows more and more in his understanding of who Jesus is. That is very much what happens and is a picture for us of our stories. That if you have truly met Jesus Christ, you have gone from this stage of being blind in your sin. And gradually Jesus Christ has brought you to see the light, to recognize your sin. Your wretchedness. And ultimately to, to, to recognize the gospel and to really understand the scripture. To really understand why Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. And to now be completely free. You have a, a, a sight of your sin, of yourself. You have a sight of the Savior. And now you're no longer blind. You've walked your life in the past and you have felt the, the whole intensity of the blindness. All of us have that story. I was Catholic and my blindness was great. My blindness and resistance to evangelicals was great. My, my stubborn unbelief was, was great. My sin, my conscience against me was showing me my wretchedness and I kept suppressing it until I saw the light and I saw Jesus Christ. And I understood why he died on the cross. I, I saw the gospel. I saw and I realized the wretchedness of my sin. And the cross became tangible and visible. He died for me. That is what it means to come to this, to this miracle. To, to see the, the spiritual coming out of blindness into true spiritual sight. This miracle becomes therefore a launching pad for Jesus. To give this final sermon, brief, brief words on spiritual blindness, which is the issue, friends. The issue is the spiritual blindness, not just the physical blindness of this man. Remember, Jesus has declared to be the light of the world. Remember two weeks ago, we saw what that, that entailed, that word. And after this long quarrel that we saw last week with the Pharisees, now this is a visible, tangible way that the light of Christ brings through sights. But also, it does something. It gives sight to the blind, but it also blinds the darkness. That doesn't want to come into the light. They want to stay in unbelief. They want to stay in, in the sin. The religious leaders, they're face, failing to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah. And after this, just so you know, miracles are getting so big that they have to come up with plans to kill Jesus. That is the measure of their unbelief. But what we see here is that Jesus comes to give sight. And he gives sight to those who are poor, beggars, wretched, but they believe. And by their faith, they find their true sight. However, that, 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 that sight also comes to blind religious people like the Pharisees. Who in their pride, in their self-sufficiency, in their self-righteousness, stubbornly reject that gospel. 
stubbornly reject and, do, and, and, and remain in their unbelief. And so let us look how our story begins here. It begins with a, with a question. Verses 1 through 5. The disciples have a question. And the question toward this uh, blind man is wondering whether he's blind from birth because of some sort of punishment. However, Jesus' response is interesting. That blindness, beyond being the result of living in a fallen world, has actually a greater purpose. It becomes the, the, the way for God to be glorified. That is what, whether blindness or trials or any of those things, are a platform for God to be glorified. That is for the glory of God that He is blind. Verses 1 to 3. Jesus, remember last week we had this miraculous survival of being stoned. They wanted to stone Jesus for saying, before Abraham was, I am. And he miraculously passed through the crowds and ended this whole controversy. And, and he's still in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and now he's walking to the temple and he sees this man who was blind from birth. And nobody was asking him to heal him. Which means something happens in Jesus. He sees the pitifulness of this man. He knows his past. He knows the fact that he is blind from birth. And shows therefore the great kindness and the condescension of the Savior toward this man. There he was, laying in the temple, begging for money. Blind since he was born. Surviving also only through alms for few coins. Although his parents, as we'll see, are still leaving, he's in a pitiful condition. And Jesus is moved to act compassionately toward this blind man. Once again, it's Jesus who takes initiative and comes in the midst of our struggle. And at this point, the disciples perhaps perceive that the master is looking to this man as he's walking. And they want to ask him this question. And, uh, and he used the opportunity of this question to, to learn something from Jesus. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents? That is their question. I mean, how can this blindness be a punishment for sin if he was born before committing any sin? Who sin has caused this man to be in born blind? That is their reasoning here. I was reading of a guy from Croatia. He went through a train crash. He went through being sucked out of an airplane door. He survived a bus crash into a river. Two car fires. Being hit by another car and narrowly avoiding a 300 feet drop after a driving accident. All those things. I mean, you hear these stories like what on earth caused all these things to come together upon this person? Why was he so unlucky? The world may wonder, is this some sort of punishment for his sin? I mean, you can imagine the puzzling harshness of being born blind. And you wonder why. Why, why bad things happen to good people? What did he do wrong? Was it a result of his own sins? Or did his parents do something that brought him to the world without seeing? I mean, this is an example in the disciples of a primitive and crude view of divine justice. Every calamity is a punishment for some sort of sin. This is how we see in the Old Testament the friends of Job. 
You remember the story? They come to Job and, uh, Job, you must have done something wrong. And uh, the Ten Commandments indeed mention that children sometimes are punished for the sin of their fathers. But in the case of this blind man, it does not necessarily follow. That's what Jesus' answers will show us, that the mindset of the disciples, of, the, of this cause and effect, is missing the point. They're looking for someone to blame rather than what Jesus does, seeking a solution to the problem to bring glory to God. I know I'm particularly prone to such fatalistic trap. My, my, my wife reminds me often of that. Something goes wrong and the first thought is, is this a judgment from God? My wife was just this week reading this uh, book and we were having this conversation on the car as we were going to the Smoky Mountains and this book was a lady that goes to grace to you and and it challenges some of this mindset that sometimes is common among the disciples and it is common among us if we're not careful the point is believers are not under a judgment but they are under the grace of God no there are times that God providentially as we saw this morning with Abraham Ultimately, using things in our life to chastise the children. But at the same time, we should not read too much into things in a merely insensitive, I would say, cause and effect movement. Oh, this is because you sin. We don't know. However, Jesus' answer will show us that he agrees that sin is indeed is what brings much sorrow into the world. He doesn't deny that. But it gives us, more importantly, a lesson of how far more crucial than knowing why is that we make use of the opportunity in a broken world to glorify God even through that affliction. Just like the disciples, we, we must be aware of looking at people as subject for a theological discussion of some sort rather than being object of God's glory, God's mercy in the situation. We must combat, therefore, against this tendency Asking questions about sufferers rather than sympathizing with them and their problems first. Instead of going for the Savior. See, Christ is the one that can solve the problem. The disciples, through their questions, are proving they're only driven by idle curiosity. But let's look at verse 3. The reply of Jesus to the disciples. Neither him nor his parents. That, that is denying their entire thoughts process here neither the possibility that you know is not denying that at times yes this might be the case surely everyone is as sin and fall short of god's glory don't misunderstand but that is beside the point job going again to the book of job teaches us that suffering is not always due to a direct equation between sin and suffering indicating that the disciples again are seeking the wrong kind of question at this point Elsewhere, Jesus addressed this simplistic logic between calamity and iniquity. And, and interestingly, right there where they are, the pool of Siloam, as we'll see, there's another point in the gospel in Luke 13, verse 4 to 5. Jesus tells the crowds, Remember those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? Again, this simplistic equation. It must be because of sin that they, they die. Jesus says, I tell you no. But look at how it ends verse 5. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
The truth is that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. And whether capital punishment for a sin comes in this life or in the next is beside the point here. But there's a way in which God will get the glory here. There was a way to escape the judgment of God through an actual spiritual sight, through repentance, that Christ reveals us the way to a true spiritual sight. The real more important reason the blind is facing this harsh providence throughout his life is to come to the mountain peak of that experience of face to face with Jesus Christ and getting his sight. Interesting, Jesus says that the works of God may be revealed in him. Interesting, he used the works, the word that comes here and in following verses, remember, work on the Sabbath is a problem. That, that this is happening in a Sabbath. But we already saw in chapter 5, you remember, that like God, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, can work, can do this work of God on the Sabbath without breaking it. Look what God can do with fallen humanity. Regardless of whatever sin you might have done or where, where you come from. Why? Why is this happening? Rather than why, it's how God can be glorified through that trial. That the works of God may be manifested or displayed in this man. Think about it. This is a similar answer to John eleven four. Jesus is about to perform the last miracle, raising Lazarus from the dead. And he gives the same exact answer. Through what's about to happen to the blind, his miracle, through, through the power and glory of God coming down through that miracle, it will demonstrate and illustrate before everyone through Jesus Christ that he brings sight to the blind. And that brings glory to God. This is about the, the, the power of God. That it will be seen by everyone. Even the enemies of Jesus. Remember the issue is the blindness. The spiritual blindness is the issue. Not the physical. That's why Zach Poonen once says, God can make the very worst thing that ever happened in your life. To work for your very best. Through through, through, through the trust and the faith that this blind man will, will, will display. It is cruel to just claim false for tragedies in people's life in a simplistic way like the disciples. We are unable to know the mind of God in a depth that is beyond our understanding. If only we could see things with heavenly perspective, no further hurt would, 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 would be caused by our thinking. And so sometimes, in fact, it's the opposite. It's actually misfortunes that are the platform through which God intervenes and reveals a great purpose through that affliction. Every person that observes this miracle will realize that Jesus is indeed the light of the world. The, the point by which we started two weeks ago will be displayed through that miracle. And sometimes even not through the miracle, but through the affliction. I think of uh, John Erickson Tata as a, um, a believer. She, she fell when she was young as she was jumping in a, at the sea. She was jumping out of that platform and she broke her neck and she was paralyzed for the rest of her life. Still to this day. And uh, the first uh, years were very intense. Uh, it was very hard for her to answer that question. Why, Lord? Why is this happening to me? I am a believer. I have done nothing. Uh, I have done nothing wrong. And it's like, why is this happening? And it brought her to great despair. 
she couldn't use her hands, she couldn't, she couldn't do things that she wanted to do. But then something switched in the process. And that is the, 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 the answer of Jesus here. God can be glorified through that affliction. Something switched that she no longer wanted to know why. And she started to realize, how can I glorify God through this? And I'm telling you, she speaks, she, she wrote books, and she encourages countless believers going through afflictions to have the right perspective as they go through that affliction. That shows us in tune with this story that afflictions, trials, tragedies in this life, even the things about yourself that you would consider the greatest obstacle, indeed God can use them. They can become something that leads to our ultimate good, God being glorified. Something through which, despite the pain, we're not undermining the pain that this blind man went through, but God can still be glorified nevertheless. And that is the answer of Jesus. It is not only for my glory, but it is for my mission. Verses 4 and 5. He, he, he disregards the whole controversy with religious leaders, which, again, it's about to bring him to death. They want to kill him. He says, I must work. I must work, Jesus says. The works of him who sent me, the Father, who saw last time. Jesus got no time now to satisfy either the curiosity of the disciples, but also the objections of these religious leaders. He knows that when he's about to do this miracle, they're going to come after him. But he must work the miracle the Father sent him. The fact here, again, that the Pharisees, remember from chapter 5, are criticizing the fact that he's working on the Sabbath. But Jesus deliberately challenged them through this act. He has to pick this fight. Because... It will make their plots all the, more, all the more inexcusable. Already verse 3 we see the focus is God's work may be revealed in the blind men. And in verse 22, he tells us that there is already a mandate for arrest for anyone confessing Jesus as Messiah publicly. Think about it. I mean, there's a higher and higher cost for doing this miracle for Jesus Christ. Because this day is another Sabbath. What should I do? Should I pick another day to avoid the clash with these religious leaders again? No. Jesus says he's determined. I must work this work of ministry. Why? Because it's still day. This is the last year of Jesus' ministry. But night is coming. Referring to the point when Jesus is betrayed and 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 delivered through to the authority to be arrested, put on trial, die on the cross, it will be the end of his ministry. I mean, you try to mow the grass after dark, it's not a very pleasant experience. Anything you try to do in the dark, it's not good. But Christ, the light of the world, is still there. And, and, and this is the time for me to show that light through this miracle. He had declared to be the light of the world weeks ago. So his mission is, is still going on. And he must act even despite the resistance from the darkness. In this sense, the, the effect of Jesus shining his light through the miracle is to force everyone to choose to be either for or against him. Either stay in the dark or come to the light. So this is a must for him and for us too. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, Jesus is not suggesting that once you, 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 you went, you, Christ goes to heaven, then, then ministry is over. That the darkness is here. No, we are the light of the world, remember. Like we saw in past week. 
There's a compelling determination to accomplish his ministry despite the darkness. And that for us should inspire us as believers. Even in the face of the opposition. Even in the face of the growing darkness that we will face. We must let the light shine no matter the darkness. Remember, prior to this time, the gospel tells us that Jesus, what did he do? He set his face toward Jerusalem. Now he knows that he's about to die. And yet he's determined to fulfill the mission of God, even if it costs him his life. That for us is the priority. No matter even the martyrdom that awaits Christ there, the determination to let the word of God shine, despite the fact that he knows that it will stir up division. The Pharisee will go after him. He still does it. But let's look at the, at the, at the blind man. The, the, the way that he responds to this, the verse 6 to 12. There's something that he does that is in, in direct contrast to the Pharisees. I want you to see. He, he goes to the pool of Siloam and, and he sees. He receives his sight. He obeys. He believes. Whereas the Pharisees stay and will see and, and remain in blindness. So what we see here in this miracle is that with unlikely means. I mean, you look at the, the spit and the mud that Jesus uses. Unlikely instruction. He's telling to a blind man to go and wash at the pool. But actually, what, however unlikely it looks like, he heals this man. And this man puts his trust in the instruction and he receives his sight. So that is the healing, verse 6 and 7. The way that Jesus goes about doing these miracles is very unique, to say the least. He, he spat using the saliva to, to make the dust of the ground into mud. It's not the only time that Jesus does something like this. Mark 7, Mark 8, he touches the deaf and the mute, man's tongue with saliva. He mostered the eyes of another blind man in Bethsaida with saliva. He does that several times, which in ancient time, by the way, was considered to have curative powers. And remember also God in Genesis chapter 2. How did he create man from the dust? So Jesus again is, is doing this miracle, proving that he's the creator once again. And he comes forward, he provides, and he grants this man what he omitted to give him when he created him in the womb. Ultimately for a greater glorious plan. So the point remains that Christ can use whatever means he wants to different occasions. Some, sometimes even without means, God can accomplish his miracle. The focus remains him, not the way in which he does that. Or the methods he uses. The point is this man who applied and puts and spread this clay on the man. The Messiah. Can even use mud as if it was anointment. The focus is not the manner again but the message behind this healing. The spiritual sight as we will see. His word indeed are given to apply and Surely push the man. I mean, you got mud in your eyes. You want to get going and, and, and go and get healed. The irritation that it caused. And it orders him to go to the pool of Siloam. Now, we are in the temple in Jerusalem here, okay? This pool of Siloam is an interesting place. I was watching on YouTube. There's, they just rediscovered the entire pool. It's outside the wall of the temple, but it's still within the walls of Jerusalem. And they have found the entirety of this gigantic pool which is laid right there in the Tiropean Valley. The water was flowing from this pool, came by the channel at the end of the Zechariah's Tunnel, the city of David. 
uh, cut through the rock, and and uh, and then it's it's a huge pool. It's 53 feet in length, 18 feet wide, 19 feet deep, right underneath this temple, and. It was intended for the water in case that the city gets besieged, but it became also f for the, all the pilgrims who are coming up to Jerusalem. It became a, a, a purification pool. Uh, people believe there were curative powers. And so it's not far from where the blind man is. And he, now Jesus commands him to go. And it's interesting how even the, 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 the meaning of Siloam is sent, which fits the story, the mission that Jesus is accomplishing here. The blind is sent by Jesus as a first kind of mission to get washed. And you could think, well, Jesus could have led him by the hand. Why doesn't he do that? To a blind man who is a beggar in the temple, because some effort is still demanded. See, that's where faith comes into action. You remember the Old Testament story of Elisha. He sent Naaman, the, the pagan king, to wash in the Jordan River seven times. And Naaman is like, why do you send me in that dirty little river right there? I could have get washed in all the rivers that I got in my country. No, it's because he needed to express his faith. And so he does, seven times. And so what we see here, there's no cruelty on the, on the request of Christ. It is a test of faith. And the blind man obeys. And guess what? He comes back to the temple and he sees. I mean, that's the almighty power that Christ holds in his hand to give blind men who are born from birth sight to the point that everyone in the temple recognizes him as this is the guy that has been begging and blind from birth they cannot deny that that's the man and he's now actually healed that tells you how this this case was before the eyes of everyone in the temple for years that's what makes the thing give more glory to God you see the question that is repeated four times in this text. How did you get healed? Everyone cannot believe what they see. A blind man born from birth see. This is undeniable. This is the work of God that gets displayed before everyone, just like Jesus told us. And so they ask him, and he says, Jesus, but he doesn't know where he's at. Jesus indeed is, in other words, very prone to use unlikely means to accomplish unlikely results like here. This is how God gets the glory. Just back then, so it is today. The question is not why or how does he heals it, but who heals this man? Who is Jesus? That he is the sent one, right? The spiritual Siloam. And sent to bring refreshment, to, to heal us. The, the spiritually thirsty, the, the spiritually blind. Notice how obedience toward God is what deals and leads the, the blind man to experience the, the power of God in, at work in his life. Now, if he would have disobeyed, if he would have disregarded, he would have left this man in his blind man. Just like the prophet uh, Elisha said to Naaman. And if Naaman didn't obey, he would have stayed a leper. So it is with your spiritual sight, friend. If you resist the instruction of the Word of God, and you continue in the darkness of unbelief, you cannot expect all of a sudden to be able to see. That what we see here is that faith has action attached to it. There's a, there's a response. There's an obedient response. There's a, there's a 
relying upon the words of Christ for your salvation. Let's look at the Savior's question right there in verse 35 to 38, which is ultimately the most important thing for this blind man. It's not the fact that he gained physical sight. There's a deeper spiritual sight that is far more important. And so Jesus asks, do you believe? Do you believe? That is the second step of this healing. This blind man has gained physical sight, but now he must gain spiritual sight about who Jesus is. And the need that he has to believe and worship this Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah. In other words, faith is through sight. Verse 35 to 38, this second encounter with Jesus after the trial, we'll, we'll get to that. And this blind man has been excommunicated, by the way, by these religious leaders. What, what that, that meant, it meant a, a big price, okay? When you're excommunicated in the Jewish uh, system, you cut off from friends, even your own family. You look as an outcast. The cost for being associated with Jesus is becoming greater and greater, as we said. Yet he was willing to take this, as we'll see in the, in the way that he debates with the Pharisees. Again, God is pursuing this needy man. God is pursuing the outcast. Like previous miracles, Jesus is addressing the deeper problem, however. Even with the healed man, he said, there's a deeper problem, friend. Do you believe in the Son of God? Because that's what true sight you, mean, you need now. The blind man needs some instruction, however. Who is this Son of God that I may believe in him? He asks Jesus back. I mean, he wants to believe, obviously, but he, he needs to know more information about it. And so the blind man realizes that the one who is talking with him is the one who actually healed him. I am the one who is speaking to you right now. See how Jesus brings the reign of God into the dark world and through this perfect life that he lives in our place and through this perfect death on the cross for our sin and through his resurrection from the dead, he grants us through sight that in Christ get God acted to bring redemption to the blind man which is you and me we live in a fallen world full of blindness of all sorts the blind man can see and, and, and like this blind man he now beholds the one who healed him he beholds the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ you have seen him and he's talking with you I am the one who healed you it is because of me that you see at all. And, he, and after that, as he beholds his Savior, here is the confession of faith. Lord, I believe. And he bowed down and he worshipped. Immediately, without reservation, he acknowledges and submits to Jesus Christ as Lord of his healed life. And he recognizes him as God because he worships him. The greatest miracle this man needed was not receiving physical sight as as great as that is that for all of his life he was blind to actually open his heart to actually receive spiritual sight and to actually trust in the savior that is the ultimate goal of the miracle and finally we have an example in the gospels where this is accomplished completely the true spiritual sight of who Jesus is, how crucial it is for him to bow down to, to this Jesus Christ as Lord. That's what he needed the most. 
That's why you and I need the most. Even more than the physical resolution of our problems, it is us submitting to Christ as Lord that transfers us now from the dominion of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Remember, the initiative in the salvation is not ours. It's Jesus. God comes he seeks us, he finds us in our blindness, in our desperation, in our bankruptcy. And whatever price we pay, like this man, at the end of the day, there's a cost of discipleship. He's excommunicated by the blind religious people. But that cost, friend, is worth paying. Because you experience the insurpassable riches of Christ becoming yours. You experience true sight. You experience the encouragement and the spiritual help from the fellowship that you have with Jesus and the fellowship we have with true believers. You cannot get any of that by remaining in, in the world. The next point, whether it's family members that don't stand in our defense, that's what happens with the parents of the blind men, or the fear of men, or false religion that grants you Yes, a lot of privileges, a lot of social acceptance, but it's dead, dead tradition. That's the fourth point in our text. What is the response of the Pharisee now? Well, the blind man went and he saw. Well, the, the, the Pharisees are staying in their darkness. They're staring in their unbelief. They're staring in their sin and they remain blind. And there's several verses that are listed there for you. We see the Pharisees like secret police, okay? They're interrogating the blind man, his family, his parents, only to find out, actually, they are the true blind in the story. So let's look at verse 13 to 34. What is it that blinds these Pharisees? Is their unbelief, the lack of faith, the trial? There's this trial that begins. The man is brought before the Pharisees. And the question in verse 14 is, why? Why are they treating him this way? Well, because again, like in chapter 5, there's a problem here. The miracle happened in the Sabbath. Uh-oh. That was a problem for them. He's breaking the Sabbath by healing. There was a story. There was a, in the ancient times, the Romans, there was a king who was able to defeat the the Romans' army at the Battle of Heraclea in 279 BC, he won the Romans, this king. However, that, that, that victory almost destroyed his entire armies. In other words, what is happening here is, is a great miracle. But the persecution and the cost that comes with that miracle and the attacks from the religious leaders become almost greater than the miracle. The, the reason of this original tension between Jesus and through the, the darkness of false religion, it gets loud and loud and loud. And whether it makes, that's why Jesus in the beginning, you remember, he was wondering, should I do this or should I not? I know that I must work, but I know the price. And so Jesus did it again. He broke the Sabbath in the mind of the religious leaders. The parallel between chapter 5, we saw the paralytic and the blind man. There they, they were two pools, okay? It's almost the same thing. It's intentional. 
he, they are upset that Jesus is defi defiling our warning and he goes intentionally once again against our traditional understanding of what it means to break the Sabbath. And he's healing a man on the Sabbath. And instead of being rejoicing over this man who has found his sight, this man that has come to the temple and begged before their faces for years, no, they are horrified by it. It reminds us of Isaiah 28, verse 12 to 13. Warning us about the danger of traditionalism. Warning us about the, the danger of false religion. It's precisely on this issue of the Sabbath. Uh, Isaiah 28, verse 12 to 13. Here is rest. Give rest to the weary. But they would not listen. So the word of God to them began precept upon precept, line upon line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward. That's what false religion does. Verse 15 in our text, after the, they ask question after question. They are interrogating this man. And the, the Pharisee seems deaf to all answers that they're receiving simply because they cannot admit the obvious. Simply because they are stubborn in their belief. They would rather change the facts than to actually recognize, hold on, there's the power of God at work here. We better stop. Verse 16. And during this pointless investigation, they conclude that Jesus is not from God. Why? Because he does not keep the Sabbath. We saw again this charge is actually not true. Jesus didn't break the Sabbath. It sounds logical to these lead religious leaders. But they should have stopped and think twice on the premise of their entire argument. It, it was flawed. Healing on the Jewish Sabbath is not a sin. It's actually a work of mercy. It's ironic, therefore, how other religious leaders at least have some common sense. And so there's kind of a dispute between the, the Pharisees here in this moment. That no sinner can do miracles. This man is doing miracles. It has to be from God. And so the council is split. But again, this man, by and large, the majority of the council is still under the bondage of the law. They have no true knowledge of God's grace. The law makes them more guilty in their self-righteousness. And they reject the good news of God's grace that could heal them from blindness. That is announced by Jesus. The light that is shining. They don't like that. And so friends. Let's be careful. Whenever like those Pharisees. We can become this one issue thinkers. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. The Sabbath. And you're dismissing something in your mind. That is unbiblical. Only on the basis of your tradition. And Jesus is suffering something far greater. Than keeping the law. Keeping traditions. He's giving us actually true spiritual rest. He's giving this, this needy beggar a solution to his problem. This is the beginning of this down spiral, friends. The spiritual blindness, the self-deception of the Pharisees. The blind that leads other blinds only to fall into the pit. But verse 17 to 23, this uh, uh, trial continues. The blind man defends Jesus and he says he's a prophet. If not even the Messiah. The Jewish leaders, however, continue to be blind, continue to be deaf. They had to call the parents of the blind because they did not believe that he must be, oh, he must be an impersonator of, of the actual blind man that we saw every, every Sabbath who stood in the temple from his birth. I mean, note, notice, therefore, how cruel 
and unjust the unconverted religious men treat those who disagree with them on the basis of dead clear evidence before their eyes. Nothing is more convictive than the, than the feeling of testifying against us that we, we are suppressing the truth here. I am suppressing the truth. That despite all their religious claim, they are actually the blind in the situation. There's actually an, always an excuse ready for the one who just doesn't want to believe. I, I, just, I just find another excuse and another excuse and another excuse. But the parents testified even sadly reluctantly to the truth. Verse 24 to 25, the religious leaders follow the blind parents' advice. They ask, the Pharisees are insatiable. They want to charge or even change the facts to accuse Jesus. And they say to the blind, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. And in this case, it's ironic because again, he is giving glory to God. So, so you know. But they are using actually God's name in vain. They want the man to confess of a false charge, of a false crime. It's like asking him to take an oath in court. You promise before God that you will tell the truth, right? But they're completely incompetent in discerning the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. Jesus is an evil, wicked, criminal, and an imposter. I mean, they're so self-deceived. They have completely a wrong judgment over Jesus. They, they, not Jesus, are the wicked in the story. They and not the blind men are, are the blind. And the answer of the man is reluctant to engage in, in, in all their speculation. It says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. The blind man has just one short encounter with Jesus. He doesn't know yet the entirety of, of, of who Jesus is. He doesn't know at this stage. He doesn't even care if that's the case. He's, he might be ignorant in the eyes of the Pharisee, but it shows us how pathetic and com completely over the top the thinking of these Pharisees is. One thing I know. Okay, This is the only one thing I'm dead sure, 100%. Beyond disputation, all that he knows is summed up in these undeniable words. I was blind, but now I see. Nothing can change this truth. Nothing. Even a child can see that that's what happened. That is the incurable blindness of the Pharisees. In verse 27, they ask the same question. They're so blind. They almost make fun of of themselves. I mean, the, 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 the blind man says, do you also want to become one of, the, of his disciples? I already told you. I mean, you have to admit that this man is bold. He has the courage to ask questions because he's not intimidated by the threats of the Pharisees. In verse 28 to 29, they don't have a sense of humor, so they get mad. They brag about their allegiance to Moses. They, they, they don't even know where Jesus comes from. They're right about that. In verse 30 to 34, you can picture the blind that is laughing at this point. It's like, isn't that something? You don't know where he comes from. And yet, he has healed a man blind from birth, which you never heard from the beginning of the world. They're in the dark about Jesus. And yet, this Jesus is giving sight to the blind. It's almost like the blind is preaching to them. You have to admit this point. He, he's beginning to step in to defend Jesus. You follow the logic of the blind man for a moment. Only God can heal. 
And God doesn't answer the prayer for healing from a wicked person. Instead, the normal pattern is usually God answers the prayer for healing from the righteous. So if this man healed me, who I was blind, he must be from God. Or he couldn't do nothing. But in blind pride, the, the, the Pharisees, with their holier-than-thou attitude, they cast the blind out. That's why Robert Hunter once said, It comes a time when the blind man takes your hand and says, Don't you see? That's what's happening here. At the end of the day, what lies behind this blind man's statement is the undeniable truth, I was blind, but now I see. And that truth is true for every true believer in Christ. That's something every true child of God can testify about the fact that while you don't know the ins and outs about the transformation, the miraculous transformation that takes place in your life, the moment that you finally understood the scripture, the moment you finally understood what faith and repentance, and not only understood, but you actually exemplified them, nevertheless, you know that you too once was blind, and now you see. And how, we are, how do you understand that? The presence, the power of the redeeming Christ is beyond our comprehension. But God enters into your life. He dispels your darkness. There was a time that you could not see. There was a time you could not understand. That you went to church, you, you sang the hymns, you heard the word, but you were still blind. And now God opens your eyes to your sinfulness, to your need of a Savior. And that gives glory to God. But there's no speculation from the so-called experts of the law, or the Pharisees, that can undermine the simple reality of conversion. Though I was blind, now I see. You listen to the, pros to, 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 to the process that goes on here. You can understand mentally, but to possess the knowledge about the things of God is a whole different thing. Yes, you can be exposed to the light and you don't make use of that light. Or you think you see when you're actually still spiritually blind to yourself, to your sin, to your wretchedness, and therefore to the need of the gospel and that repentance from sin and that faith in Christ to have a mental understanding but not actual sight over it is an extremely dangerous thing. I want to I venture to say this borderline demonic. They're like the religious leaders. You are full of theological jargon, but you don't have the light of Christ in you. And you are messing up with holy things. And you are actually not trusting your life. You're still blind in the dark. And, they, and what they're doing, they're offending God. They keep inquiring, but they have already rejected Jesus. They think that he's just a man. That is a scary place to be because they will be judged. Look at verse 39 to 41. Seeing the faith of the healed blind man. And then you have the, the, the unbelieving Pharisees in the same room. Jesus now reflects of the, the whole story. He declares what he could call the summary of this, the moral of this entire miracle. The moral of the story is this. Jesus says, for judgment, I came into this world. I've come with judgment. When, you, when judgment comes, there's a separation there's a discrimination that we have to separate between those who truly believe in Jesus and they are they were blind but they now see and then we have to separate with those who claim to see but they are in their blindness 
for judgment I came so that those who do not see may see and those who see may be made blind. That is a play on word right there. It's not that the religious leaders could not see before, like physically. The problem is the presence of Jesus, when Jesus comes and he's present, and the negative reaction to him, to his message, to his light, and to his miracles, it demonstrates plainly that they are spiritually blind. Those who think that they are well, they miss what those who are aware of their sickness, aware of their wretchedness, aware of their blindness, they actually receive the healing. See that? That the Pharisees are not actually well. In fact, they will die eternally in their sickness and blindness because they, they, they cannot see. Now, in verse 40, our text ends by the Pharisee. They overheard the words of Jesus. And they knew that he was speaking about them. So they ask, are we blind also? Remember the whole debate last week? They kept accusing the I am, the God on earth, of blasphemy. They accused him of having a demon. They accused him of being born out of wedlock. Are we blind too? Oh yes, you are. You should know by now that you are dead blind. Their own words testify against them. And, and in verse 41, it ends right there. Jesus' final indictment against the Pharisees. If you were blind, you would have no sin. In other words, you would be better off. At least you would have an excuse, okay? That you, you, you don't know about your blindness. And remember in context, how the disciples' original question rotated around the, who is a sinner? The blind man or his parents? Now, if that was the case... It was out of the person's control. But the Pharisees now have seen the miracle. Now have received the, 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 the words of Jesus. But in prideful deception, with, with their self-righteous blindness, that is testifying against them. Now you say you, you claim to see. Because you claim to see, that's where the real problem of the Pharisees is. They, they have a confident false assurance that they can actually see. But that's the very thing that leaves them in continuous guilt. That's the very thing that testifies against their conscience. That there's something they must be repented of. But this type of blindness of the Pharisees is sadly incurable. Because they, they keep insist that they are spiritually discerning. Until you keep thinking that you can actually see, you will never be able to make any change, any progress. Everything starts by realizing, look, I'm blind. And if you don't do that, your sin, your guilt remains. Your, this is your fault. It's your responsibility. In fact, this is an eternal sin that leads to death. In chapter 15, verse 22, Jesus reiterates this. He says, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would, have no, 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 they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. In the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is stoned to death. That's what John Vinge said. The moral paradox of the way that God reveals himself in this world is clear to our eyes. That Christ equally opens the eyes of the blind. And by that I mean the beggar. By that I mean the needy. 
The person who has come under the conviction of sin, who realizes his wretchedness, his absolute blindness, incompetence in any spiritual matter, and he cries out, and he gets healed. But you must realize your need first. You must realize your sinfulness. You now listen to the Word of God, and you obey it. You believe the Word of God. That is where you expect the grace of God to actually be shown. It doesn't matter who the person who receives it is. It doesn't matter his past. It doesn't matter how far from God he was until that point. It doesn't matter how far this blindness led him. Think about the Apostle Paul. He was blindly persecuting Christians, thinking that he was doing the will of God. That's how blind he was. And in the road to Damascus, he lost all of his sight, only to find it again. And from that moment, he becomes an apostle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting how sometimes the poor unlearned who has little claim to religion, but he meets Christ and he becomes far wiser than the educated, the rich, the, the, uh, the religious expert of this world. Friend, if you believe in Christ's power to open your eyes, although you were born in darkness, you receive this true sight, which is matchless. Yes, that's how God brings salvation. But as Spurgeon once said, the same sun that brings beauty out of the seed also exposes the vermin hiding under the rocks. In other words, the inevitable result of the light of the world coming into the darkness of this world is the condemnation of those who would not believe. Those who saw the miracle, they cannot deny the miracle and still refuse to believe. It would have been better if they had not known their blindness than being placed face to face with their light and deny it. They could have sought forgiveness for the sin of unbelief. They could have found sight from Jesus. Instead, no, they claim with their words to see. But according to the unshakable, undeniable truth, they don't see one thing. The inevitable consequence to salvation of some is the perdition and the loss for others who refuse and reject the gospel. Christ opens the eyes of the blind, yes, but he shuts the sight of those who self-sufficiently claim to see. Those who profess to have a clear vision of the ways of God. Those who profess to know His words. While at the same time they deny the word of God by their life. By their scheme in this case. They're, they're plotting to kill Jesus. The innocent Jesus. Their darkness. Their bad-mouthing. Their hatred. They're resolute in one thing in unbelief. Those who are religious, yes, but self-righteous in, in, in that religion. They boast about the presumed knowledge of God, but they have no clue about who Jesus is. So, as the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, once said, I once was blind, but now I see. It was written by this man in England, John Newton, who was... For all of his life, a wretched man. He was a slave trader. He went to the Africa and South America. And he, he, he was a wretched man. He hated Christians, mocked Christians. He was... And he could see, okay? He had a sight. He saw things. He, he had riches of this world. Comes to the end of his life, he starts to lose his physical sight. And 
there's this conversation he has with uh, William Wilberforce, his friend, and he says to him, look, I now begin to see. Now that I'm losing my physical sight, I begin to see. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a great savior. That he lost his physical sight, but he gained his spiritual sight. I was, I was blind when I could see, but now that I'm blind, I can see. God opens the eyes to the sin of the sinner, the wretchedness. You see yourself rightly now in the light of the purity and the beauty and the light and the, and the holiness of God. You are under his conviction. You now realize your blindness. You own it and you confess it and you now cry out for sight to see things clearly. We never meet the beggar blind in the gospel but it seemed plausible that from now on he followed Jesus closely he witnessed for the rest of his life to countless people I was that blind man God's work in my life it's bringing glory to God for what Jesus did for me that despite the rejection of the religious leaders that that is the cycle the the contrast between faith and unbelief you see here that the blind see and those who claim to see become blind this story helps us, even believers. You, you may have gained this sight. You, you have been converted. You have come out of that blindness. But you still, you still may, like the disciples, struggle to see the purpose of God. Beyond appearance, the real purpose of God through the specific situation, even of that trial, that harsh providence. So may we have eyes open toward God's mission right before our face. This story also shows us how any person, spiritually blind as he may be, can gradually receive true sight on who Jesus is, on what the gospel really means, and how to actually see the, the entirety of that for your life. That you obey and trust the word of Jesus. Friends, Jesus' light shines this morning before you. It's shining. Every time the word of God is preached, that's how the, the light, the gospel comes out and shines and shines and shines. That you must see by believing in this word. Bowing down to Jesus Christ as Lord in true worship. And despite the cost, yes, there is a cost. You may be ostracized from now by the world. You may have opposition from friends and family. Even false Christians sometimes, that they may hold to tradition without Christ, like the Pharisees. It's like a false religion is like, think about the pacifier I give to my son. He loves to hold on to that pacifier. Our daughter never wanted a pacifier, but our son, oh, he loves the pacifier. He, he holds on to it, he clings to it. But false religion is like a pacifier. It doesn't give you any life. It doesn't give you any source. You keep going to it but it's empty. It doesn't give you light. It doesn't give you sight. They are the true blind in the story, the Pharisees. They are the guilty of eternal ruin by the way they respond in unbelief, in hatred toward God's doing right before their blind eyes. Friends, may we never be found in their shoes. That you face the judgment for a spiritual blinding, the removal of your discernment. Can you imagine this heart that once was soft is made now dull dull and completely hardened that is god intentionally yes he does he intentionally hinders your sight 
in light of the inexcusable, stubborn, and unrepented sin. Cry out to God that He spares you from that. Let this be a warning to you that when you come face to face with Jesus and His light shining through the gospel, you either declare like the blind man, I once was blind, but now I see. Or like the Pharisees. Oh, I thought all my life I saw. But now I'm dead. I'm coming before the, the Lord and I'm finding out that I couldn't see for all this time. And now it's too late to go back. This is the day for you to come and see. Let us pray. Oh God. We